0: Then, (laughs) that sound man, what are you going to do? Okay, if you could come in and take a seat and talk to one another after church, that would be good. And don't do what I was just doing, talking about football with this row. Talking about football in church, can you believe it? Okay. As most of you know, uh, probably were here, on November 15th, 2020, I announced that I would be going half-time for the next two years. Uh, I would be considered a part-time pastor, not that I understood what that meant, and still don't, because how do you do ministry part-time, but it was anticipated that in 2022, the end of December 2022, I would be done. As your pastor and um, I began to think and pray about that a bit more recently as I've been out on my walks and one of the things that I found myself doing of recent is trying to figure out um, what would I want to say to you as my family here and many of you have been here for as long as I have over 30 years uh, what would I want to say to you what would I want to leave you with as my final words, almost like I was dying, you know? Um, What would my dying words to you be (coughs) that I could say? Uh, After thinking and praying about it for probably a good several months, I came to the decision that what I want to do from this point forward is actually hone in on two different areas. One is a topic, and one is a book of the Bible. If you've been here any length of time over the years, you would know that in the past, most often I loved preaching through books however long it took. One of the books I preached through took me three and a half years to preach through. Uh, I don't want to do that to you again since I don't have that long. Uh, but I do want to preach through a book of the Bible and I want to preach on a specific topic. The, the weird thing is, I've actually done this topic and this book before. But it's probably long before any of you were here But I still struggled with it a lot. And then I remembered, uh, running through my mind was the words that my father-in-law said to me some years back before he passed away. And he's one of the wisest men and one of the greatest preachers that I ever heard. Uh, He said this to me, he says, Chris, if a message isn't worth preaching twice, it's probably not worth preaching once. And that hit me hard, because it's like, all right, you're probably right. Paul repeats himself. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, Rejoice in the Lord. There's some things that are just worthy of repeat. So, uh, I'm going to actually start today over the next several weeks on this specific topic. So you're going to help me. uh, Would you complete these common American phrases for me? If it sounds too good to be true, uh, we make money the old-fashioned way, we earn it. Good. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Good. What did you say? A free ride, okay? Yeah. No pain? God helps those who... those are terms that we use all the time, like the early bird catches the worm, you know, whatever all of those terms mean. But basically, what they seem to imply is that we are made to work hard in order to win this thing called. The rat race. It's called the good old fashioned American work ethic, which I think, by the way, is becoming more and more rare in these days. But it also was intended that it would lead us to fulfill the American dream. But I want to suggest to you the only problem with all of that thinking when it comes to us is that God's ways don't align themselves with the American dream or the American work ethic. God's ways are upside down from this world system. They're backwards from how the world looks at things. The world says, you know, somebody does you wrong, you need to get even. God says, no, you leave it to me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Because he's better at it, he's kinder, he's more gracious, and he's able to change the heart. Whereas we can only deal with outward behavior. The life we live with God is different than this American way of doing life. But the problem is, I think sometimes as Christians, we try to live the Christian life the American way. And that's what often causes us so much trouble. I saw a meme recently. I think it was actually Jack or Carol who posted it. It says this, the people who make the yardstick aren't going to make it any longer this year. Now just think about it for a minute. You get it? Double entendre there, I liked it. The truth is though, the yardstick for success does change. It's constantly changing. It seems like no matter what you set as your goal, it's being pushed farther and farther back from what it was when you first set that goal. Everything seems to change. Technology changes. Think about the technology that has changed in your lifetime. How many of you guys remember having a phone that actually hung on the wall, and if you wanted to talk to somebody, you actually had to get out of your chair? You guys remember those? Remember when you got the long cord and it was like such luxury because you could pull it over and maybe sit in a chair? Today, you buy a phone, by the time you get it home, and you open the box, it's already obsolete. Technology changes just that quickly. Attitudes change around us every day. Uh, I confess to my own chagrin. My wife and I were at Lake Ontario. Or Lake Ontario. Uh, we were at Canandaigua Lake a couple of Sundays, Saturdays ago. Yeah, two Saturdays ago, I can think it was. We're sitting in our car and we're actually eating lunch together and we're looking at the water and it's beautiful. And two guys walk by and they walk. Shoulder to shoulder, very tight, laughing, very touchy, you know, Rob hitting one another. So I, they walk by us, and I confess, the first thought that went through my mind is Are they homosexuals? 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that never would have entered my mind. I would have just thought they were two friends that enjoyed being together, and they were laughing and have a good time, and they might well have been. But attitudes change. Uh, we. Recognize that same-gender marriage is a big thing that's common in our culture today. It's being pressed upon the church more and more. Abortion is no longer killing the unborn. Now it's a wife's or a mother's wise choice. Things change around us every day. Attitude change, technology change, even our language changes. Uh, Noah Webster came out with the first edition of the American Dictionary of the English Language in 1828 and he says it's for this this was his reason for putting it out there for the expressed purpose of perpetuating the simple sameness of our language but have you found that to be true anymore i mean think about it if somebody says something's bad today they don't mean it's bad they mean it's good if somebody's fat that doesn't mean they're obese it means they're pretty cool If somebody's gay, they're no longer winsomely happy. Now we say they're homosexual. Words change around us all the time. One of the words I thought that changed, it was interesting. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys still have a King James Bible. Any of you guys still have a King James? Uh, It was the Bible that I kind of grew up on. I still enjoy it. But one of the words that King James uses for love that is all throughout the Bible in the King James Version has now changed. Do you remember what that word is? Charity. And yet now charity, which used to be the highest level of love, now is something that's disdained and disrespected. I don't want no charity. Words change. But one of the words I want us to look at today and over these next several weeks that I believe has largely retained something of its original meaning is the idea of grace. Grace. Uh, As I thought about what I wanted to say to you, that if I could leave any message with you over these next several weeks, I want to leave the idea of what it means to foster a culture of grace here at Family Life Church, that we would be a people full of grace. What does that even look like? What does that mean for us? We all use the word grace fairly regularly. Some of you still say grace before your meals. Some are grateful for someone's kindness. And by the way, the word grateful has as its root word, great, G-R-A-T-E, which is the Latin word for grace. If somebody dances beautifully, we might say that they're graceful and they are congratulated at the end of their performance. If our restaurant server pleases us, we might leave a gratuity, which is a grace gift. Uh, sometimes a tradesman recognizing the inability of someone to afford their services might do it gratis or as a grace gift to them for free. Credit card companies offer us a grace period. And the opposite side of that word is equally true still in our culture. If somebody has done something wrong, like maybe perhaps our former governor, Andrew Cuomo, we would say they are someone who has fallen from grace. Or we might say that someone who doesn't receive your gift gratefully is an ingrate. All of these are terms that have to do with grace that we use every day within it. Or even a person who has betrayed their country is a person without grace. Persona non grata. All of this has to do with grace. But what does the Bible say? Psalm 145 and verse 8. Psalm 145 8 says this The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. That's what God is to us. And that's what he intends that we would be to one another and to all with whom we come in contact, no matter what their background or who they are. One of the definitions that I heard from grace, I honestly can't remember where I got it or I would tell you, but this is a definition that of all the definitions for grace that I've heard, I like the best. And it says this, grace is the face God wears When he looks at you, grace is the face that God wears when he looks at you. I've discovered that though we all love the idea of grace and even truly believe that we're saved by grace, we don't always live like it. Many times we know that we're saved by grace, but we're kept by our good, hard American work ethic. That's how we live our lives. Uh, When I was a boy, I attended a church. Maybe some of you guys had something similar. This was a church that often would have all kinds of charts on the walls. I don't know if you guys ever came from a church like that. We had charts. And one of the charts I can remember that was always right over there in the corner, and it was a chart that talked about these seven ages or dispensations in time. And one of the dispensations was the age of law, and that basically went from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. But the next age, which is the important age that we live in today, is the age of grace. Basically, from the time of Christ's resurrection until His second coming. The age of grace. And I remember hearing about that in my church growing up. In fact, I just went last week and visited that church again. I hadn't been there in forever, and I stopped just to see my father and my sister's grave and then to check out the church. But the age of grace was something that we're we're taught we were living in the age of grace. But as a teenager growing up, i got to tell you, I couldn't see much difference between the age of law and the age of grace. Because even though we didn't sacrifice animals anymore, we had all other kinds of rules and regulations from the length of your hair to the length of your dress or skirt to movies to cards to dances. Everything was proscribed. Everything was talked to you about whether it was appropriate or not. And for me growing up, I felt like, okay, Grace doesn't sound much better to me than law did. I can remember being in church as a teenager, and this happened back probably, it would have been maybe 1972. Being in church, somewhere in that time period, being in church and sitting in a row, and right in front of us was this little boy. He couldn't have been more than like a year or two old. But he's turning around and facing everybody. He wasn't yelling, he wasn't screaming, he wasn't talking. He was just smiling to beat the band. And everybody around him is smiling and waving to him. So he's just a cute little boy, like so many of our kids. And I can remember what happened. He's smiling and looking around and waving to people. And his mom turns around and says, cut it out. Sit down and be quiet. And she smacks him hard on the rear end and slams him into the pew. And then he starts crying. She says, that's better. This is church. And I thought, is that really what grace looks like? I mean, isn't the world sad enough without us making church sad? Now, I'm not condoning that children ought to be a distraction to people trying to worship God. I think we ought to try to raise our kids to learn how to function properly in a way that isn't that for all those around them. But I still think there ought to be better than having to stop people from smiling. I mean, is God not the God who, when He created the earth, He looked at it and said, Behold, it's very good? Isn't He a God that smiles when He looks at you? Because, I mean, He didn't create anybody like you. I mean, look around you. Everybody is unique. And God looks at every single one of you, and He smiles, and He actually likes you. But I wonder if that's how we function in our lives. Do you know, by the way, the genre for the most popular movies in America? Do you know what the genre is? It's comedies. Second to that is romantic comedies. Is it possible that the only time the world actually gets a taste of grace is when they see humor or romance or maybe heroic romance where somebody gives their life for somebody else? It's the only time they see grace. And people are drawn to grace because I believe the world is starving for grace. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about the people who are around you what they need is you coming out and pointing out all the things that are wrong in their life, all the things they're not doing right. I don't know if you guys are like me. Um, I don't get the paper anymore because all I wanted the comics. I like the comics. I think the comics are actually very theologically interesting. But Kelvin and Hobbes is one of my favorites. And there's one particular one of Kelvin and Hobbes where he is standing before his dad. His dad is screaming at him because he broke his binoculars. And the dad is saying, I told you not to touch them. Next frame. I told you to be careful if you touch them. Next frame. I told you don't touch them. And he's yelling at him. And Kelvin is sitting there with his head down. And finally, the last frame, he looks up at dad and he says, Dad, can we pretend for just a moment that I already feel badly enough about this? And that's how I think we ought to begin to look at people around us. People are already low enough as it is. They don't need our help to be pushed lower. They need to be lifted up and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ, which is His grace. When we read Jesus' words, there's almost like a whisper of something from another world. It's what I call olfactory déjà vu. You know it's where you get a whiff of something and you can't can't quite catch what it is. You don't know what it is, but you know you've smelled it before. When I look at Jesus' words, or even how Jesus comported Himself, how He acted, the things He did, there's a hint of grace that everything in us says, I want to be like that. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, I wish I could see Jesus face to face? I wish I could have been there to watch Him raise the dead? I wish I could have been there when He sat and 5,000 men, men, didn't count all the women and children, but 5,000 men sat there and watched him speak, and then he fed them with just a couple of loaves and some fishes. Don't you wish you could be there to see it? Because there's something about how Jesus acts that is so attractive. Probably the best word in our American vocabulary that I can think of. There's something winsome about Jesus. Makes us want it. Today, what I want to do very quickly, I don't want to take a lot of time with us today. I wanted to kind of introduce this. I want to kind of give you a foundation for where I want to go with this whole word on grace. And what I want to do is I want to give you an acrostic. So on your paper, you can just put down the word grace, G-R-A-C-E, one right after another, just like it's up on the screen, grace. Uh, I want to talk about this in a very simple way. So what does G stand for? G stands for God's gift to me. Romans 3.24 says this. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Some of you know that I like to go downtown and get my coffee sometimes. Uh, What's the name of the place I go to again? Oh yeah, Bud's. Bud's. Bud's Deli. Great coffee, by the way. Great food, too. Good people. But I go and I sit at the table and people will come and they will sit down there. And I can tell you, because I've done this kind of thing before, I'll say to them, by the way, How does a person get to heaven? If they want to go to heaven, how do they get to heaven? These are the kinds of things they say. Just be good. Just be good. Come on. Or just try more. Or just be better. Or, I love this one, do more good things than bad things and hope that the good things outweigh the bad things. Those are the kinds of things that people downtown would say about how you get to heaven. But this is what God says, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace have you been saved, through faith. That not of yourself. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift from God. The fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion is that all other religions start with the word do. There's all kinds of things you have to do in order to be accepted. Christianity starts with the word done. It was all done 2,000 years ago for you on the cross. So that when someone comes to you and says to you, how must I be saved? How can I go to heaven? It wouldn't be inappropriate for you to say too late. It's too late. Everything that needed to be done was already done for you. All you can do is accept it and receive it. Because it's a free gift from God. I'm not getting to heaven based upon what I do. I'm getting to heaven based upon what he did. And so are you. Letter R. Receive it by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift, but you have to receive it by faith. Faith is simply this. It's believing that what God says is true, but that's not it. That's not the end of the definition. It's simply believing that what God says is true for you. Because too many people I know who even call themselves Christians say, I know it's true, but it doesn't work for me. I know it worked for you. I can see it, but it doesn't work for me. Faith means you believe that what he says is true and it works for you too. There's an Old Testament story in 2 Samuel 9 about a young man named Mephibosheth. Say Mephibosheth. Isn't that a great name? What what would your nickname be for Mephibosheth? Phoebe, Phoebe. Okay, we got a Gibby, we got a Phoebe. Okay. Phoebe was the grandson of King Saul who was the king of Israel. Foreign enemy attacks Israel and King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. The nurse who was caring for Phoebe heard about it, picked him up and began to run to try to find a place to hide and she dropped him. Broke his legs, they were never set correctly, and he was lame for the rest of his life. Some years go by, and David is now made king of Israel. Years go by from that. And David says, is there anybody from King Saul's family left? Somebody says, well, I do remember there was one grandson of his, I haven't heard nor of him, but his name was Phoebe. And David says, you go find Phoebe and you bring him back. Can you imagine what Phoebe must have felt Because King Saul had tried to kill King David. Phibbe's probably thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. He's calling me to the palace so he can kill me. But he gets to the palace, and David sits him down, and David says basically, "Uh, Mephibosheth, I want you to become a part of my family. I want you to come, and I want you to live here at the palace. I want you to eat meals with me. I'm going to treat you like one of my own sons. You're going to be royalty." i got to tell you, that's grace. And that's what God did for every single one of you. He looked at you when you were broken, when you were lame, when you were unable to do it on your own, and he said, I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to make you part of mine. That's what he did for us. But Phoebe's story doesn't end there. Because God, or David, not only gave Phoebe a place at the table, he gave Phoebe land and houses and riches. Some years go by and Phoebe had a servant who went to King David and lied about Phoebe and David was upset about it and said, okay, well, do whatever you have to. Phoebe's servant, out of deception, took Phoebe's land, took it away, took his servants away, took his money away. Phoebe comes before David, sets him straight, and then David says, well, then I'm going to deal with that servant of yours. And Phoebe says this, he says, King David, before all of this happened, I was lost, and you brought me in here. What does lands and homes and servants matter to me anymore as long as I can behold your face? See, Phoebe understood something that we need to get. Sometimes when we think about grace, we think of grace as something that God gives to us so that we get that job promotion, so that we get the raise, so that we get the bigger and better house, so that we get a newer car. Or if you're going to be spiritual about it, so we get the anointing or we get the gifts or or whatever it might be. It be understood that real grace has nothing to do with that. Real grace has to do with being in his presence. That's what grace is about. Being able to see God, to behold God, to feel his presence. That's grace. That's why you'll notice there are times in our worship when God comes into the house it's like we know God is omnipresent. He's always here. He's always present. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But there are times when God uniquely comes and something special is going on. And you walk, look around the room. People are crying. They're weeping. They don't care so much about what's going on anymore. They just care God's here. That's what grace is about. Letter A. So we've got God's gift, receive. And then letter A, it's available to everyone. God doesn't discriminate regardless of what your past is, how bad you've been or how good you've been. If you think you were an atheist or you think you were very spiritual. I talk to people all the time and I'll say to them, so when when did you become a Christian? Well, I kind of always have been a Christian. You know, I was always spiritual. From the time I was a little, little baby, I was spiritual. My mom and dad always told me I was a very spiritual baby. God doesn't care what your background is. He receives anyone who will come to Him in faith to receive His gift. Romans 4.16 says this, Therefore, the promise is based on faith so that it can be a gift. Consequently, the promise is guaranteed for every descendant, not only for those who are descendants by obeying Moses' teaching, but also for those who are descendants by believing as Abraham did. He's the father of us all. Romans 10.13 Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. In other words, there's no quotas in heaven. God's not going after a specific kind of person. He's going after anyone who will. Whosoever will. That's what God is looking for. Letter C. Grace comes through Christ. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way. It's not uncommon for me to have people downtown say, well, you know, I know that you're a Christian and all that, but what do you do with Buddha or Confucius or Baha'u'llah or Krishna? What do you do with those that in their own religion they feel like they're pretty significant characters? What makes you think that Jesus is better than them? And I'll tell them. The reason is Jesus Christ is the only one who paid the price, the full price for my sin. None of the other ones did that. Jesus is the only one who raised from the dead. No one else did that. There is no other name under heaven whereby anyone can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. He tops them all. Romans 5 says this, the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ. In my Bible, one of my favorite descriptions for what it means to be a Christian is this one two-word phrase, in Christ, or it might say in Him. In fact, if you were to look at my uh, one of the first Bibles I ever owned was the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. Some of you will remember those days. My dad gave it to me as a graduation gift before I went to Elam. So I have a King James Thompson Chain Reference Bible still sitting on my shelf. And if you went to the book of Ephesians at the top of the page, it would say that the word in occurs 105 times in the book of Ephesians. In Christ, in Him, in heavenly places. It says again and again that we're in Christ. That's what it describes. So let, let me kind of describe it like this. Let's say this card represents my life and this Bible represents Jesus, okay? So this card represents my life and this Bible or this card is me. Now, in my life, I've done a lot of things wrong. I don't know about it. Have any of you guys ever done anything wrong? Have you ever sinned? So as, as you sin, your life gets marred and pretty soon it gets torn and it gets ripped and it gets marked on. Uh, it gets pretty much, and then it get, falls on the floor and gets stamped on and gets rubbed all over the place so that my life, by the time I'm done with it, it's not looking real good. But then the Scripture says that when you accept the free gift, God doesn't just send you to heaven. He takes you and He puts you in Christ so that you're now in Christ. So how much of my brokenness can you see here? What are you seeing when you look at this? You're seeing Christ. You're not seeing me. You're not seeing all my problems. So God says, I put you in Christ. Have you had problems? Do you still have problems? Yes. But it's all in Christ because he places us there in him. That's why grace is all about Jesus Christ, not some small g God. Only Christ paid the full price for your salvation. And salvation, by the way, isn't merely a ticket punched. For heaven. Salvation means that it's in your life now because you're in Christ now. Salvation is at work in you. Yes, you're saved, but you're constantly being saved because you're in Christ. And as you're put into Christ, He takes some of the brokenness in your life and He begins to turn it around. And He changes it. So all of those scars that are in your life, things that you've done wrong or things that have been done wrong to you that have left a mark, God takes those and He puts His fingerprint upon them so much so that they become Almost a badge of God's grace for you. So that when you look at that, I I have, uh, by the way, and I've made no bones about this, I have a police record. Things I've done wrong. Stuff that I did when I was younger that was just stupid. I've done some dumb things in my life. God takes all of those things and he makes them a badge so that I can talk about them without shame anymore because Jesus redeemed even that. And he redeems it in your life too. Which brings me to the final letter E. By the way, another acrostic that's a good acrostic that we didn't do today is grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That would be a good one for you just to kind of note in your Bible. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Letter E, it's eternal. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The results of God's grace never end. I want you to get that. We tend to think of, I can't wait for Jesus to come back so that I can get eternal life. No. Once you become a Christian, eternal life starts from you that very moment. You're a Christian today. You're living with eternal life today. It's working inside of you. It's not something you have to wait for. It's something you get to see the benefit of right now. That which you fully receive in eternity You also get the benefits of it in the here and now. There's a lot of people that are waiting for the there and then. But Jesus says, no, it's here and now. Which is why we love to sing about grace. That's why I had Pastor John lead in that song. It's an old hymn. Some of you guys knew that hymn about grace, grace, God's grace. It's an old hymn, but it's a good hymn. So would you stand with me? Let's sing it again together about God's grace for us. Grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, 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 God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Dark is the Thing that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, 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 God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. Marvellous, infinite, matchless Grace, grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace. is greater than all our sin we're told that we're to go about proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the words we say and how we live our lives I heard too many Christians as I was growing up telling people you know you're going to hell you're doomed you're you're judged well I got to tell you that's not good news The good news is that Jesus paid the price for you. He loves you. And that He wants you to live that way. To live a life full of grace and mercy, of kindness, of winsomeness, because of all that He has done for you. He paid the full price. How can we do anything less than to love Him and to love those around us with that same grace? Father, I thank You for the joy The joy that we have knowing that You've done it all. You've done it all. I'm reminded of the Scripture I read earlier. How much more? Lord, sin and death entered through that one man, Adam. But the second Adam purchased us salvation by His grace. Thank you for the free gift of grace. That you love us, you accept us, you receive us as your own. Lord, our minds are boggled by your goodness, your kindness to us. And Lord, we want to be able to see people around us in that same light, to show them the same grace that you're showing us. Lord, help us not to get caught up in all the rhetoric, the arguments, the discussions, the divisiveness of this generation. Lord, help us to keep our mind on the main thing. As Pastor John said a couple weeks ago, let's keep the main thing the main thing. That it's all about Jesus. Lord, we receive your grace. Lord, even as the song finished, will you this moment his grace received? We receive it today, Father. Fresh grace for our lives, for our families, for our marriages, for our children. Fresh grace for this community and for the surrounding region and for your world, God. We receive it gratefully, gladly, and in your holy name. Amen. Amen. God bless each of you. Have a great rest of your day. See you next week.